Well, good evening. If you will, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 26. Numbers chapter 26. The title of this book in Hebrew is not Numbers. It is actually in the wilderness. I believe that has been mentioned in this study before. Uh, it's a good bit more descriptive title and a good bit more accurate of what is in the book of Numbers. But it is because of chapters like chapter 26, chapters 1 through 3, uh, that in the English, the name of the book is Numbers because there are lists and lists of numbers. Because of this perception, some people think that it only has numbers, it's just lists of numbers, but as we've seen, it has many narrative portions, many portions of law. It is not just numbers. But because of that perception, not many people are doing sermon series like we are through the book of Numbers. I uh, talked to someone recently who said that they had never heard, I don't think, a sermon preached out of Numbers. And if that's not you and you have, it's likely that you haven't heard a, a sermon out of this chapter specifically. Um, you'll find a lot of pastors steering clear of this particular text. But that does not mean that this chapter is irrelevant or that it's useless. Uh, all of God's word is profitable for reproof, for teaching. The implications may not be as clear as, say, 1 John 2, 1, where he says, my little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. It is very clear what is being communicated, what is the end of the passage. That is not the case with Numbers 26. It's not as though someone is writing it and telling you explicitly you need to do this. But nevertheless, it has um, good implications for us, good lessons for us to glean. God has spoken it for a reason. It is not in here by accident. So uh, we will be covering the whole chapter. As I read through it, I will not read every single verse, just because there are many lists of names uh, that I think we can skip, and um, you'll see why. And uh, I'll just read discriminately, and I hope... At the end, you'll see why I chose the verses that I read. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 26. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, from twenty years old and upward, by their fathers' houses, all in Israel who were able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses. The people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And then we'll skip to verse 7. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palu, Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram, these are the Dathan and Byram, chosen from the congregation, who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah, when they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. And then we'll skip down to verse 14. These are the clans of the Simeonites, 22,200. And verse 18 these are the clans of the sons of Gad, as they were listed, 40,500. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shelah, the clan of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clan of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerites, and the sons of Perez were of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, 
of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. These are the clans of Judah as they were listed, 76,500. Going down to verse 25. These are the clans of Issachar as they were listed, 64,300. In verse 27, these are the clans of the Zebulonites as they were listed, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their clans, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, and going to verse 33. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. These are the clans of Manasseh, and those listed were 52,700. Uh, verse 37. These are the clans of the sons of Ephraim, as they were listed, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their clans. Verse 41. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,600. Verse 43. All the clans of the Shuamites, as they were listed, were 64,400. Uh, verse 47, these are the clans of the sons of Asher, as they were listed, 53,400. And verse 50, these are the clans of Naphtali, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,400. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance, according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. These are the clans of Levi. The clan of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Malites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korahites. And Kohath was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those listed were 23,000 every male from a month old and upward, for they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. So just to give some context for this passage, uh, what is the premise of it? As we've been working our way through numbers, we have been tracking the generation that was freed out of uh, Egypt, that participated in the Exodus, and were making their trek towards the Promised Land. Of course, we know that this people was not perfect, and when they got to the Promised Land, and God told them to go in and conquer it, they rebelled, they were scared, so they disobeyed the Lord. They said, we will not go. As a result of that, God was going to wipe them out completely, and he said he would start over with Moses, uh, start a new nation, but Moses interceded for the people. He brought to remembrance his promises uh, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. So God says, I will not wipe them out, but um, I will destroy this whole generation. They shall all die in the wilderness, not one of these people uh, of this generation shall dwell or see the land of Canaan. 
So that generation was sent back to wander and to die off. And we come to the point where that generation has died. So it is almost like a, um, a second chance for the nation of Israel, this generation. And so they start off much like the first generation did with a census. Um, some of the similarities to the first generation, they have a census conduction, uh, conducted, they are approaching the promised land, they are on the edge, much, much like the previous generation had been on the edge of the land of Canaan. And they are, as we see here, very numerous in population. There are very striking similarities between this generation and the previous, but the hope is that they will not act as the previous generation did. So that's the context. The premise is, you'll find in the first couple of verses of the chapter, is that God tells Moses and Eliezer to number the people. If you remember, Aaron was the first priest of God in the Levitical uh, lineage, and he has died in the book of Numbers. So it is his son Eliezer who's taken up the priesthood. This is his first real task as the priest, is to number the people with Moses. Uh, number the 12 tribes of descendants of Jacob. Just by way of reminder, the 12 tribes are all descended by Jacob, but not all by one woman. There was a lot of messy sexual um, maldoings in the book of Genesis with Jacob and his wives. Uh, so these tribes were born of four women, Leah, Rachel, uh, Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant, and Zilpah, Leah's servant. And this census, it is important to note, is a righteous census. Um, David later on in his, king, in his kingdom will perform a census. He'll conduct it, number the people, but he will be judged for it because God did not command him to do it. And he is trusting in himself and in numbers and might and exhibiting pride. This is not the case. It is not as though Moses and Eliezer are doing something wrong. God has told them explicitly to do this. So they do it. Uh, they go to number all the people of Israel uh, in terms of who is able to go to war. It is not all the women, men, children. It is just the men uh, who are over the age of 20 who are able to go to war. And that points to a couple of the reasons for the census. One that you'll see is that it is only listing the people who are able to go to war, as it says in verse 2. So there are military reasons for this. The people are about to go into Canaan. They're about to engage in combat with multiple peoples. So it is wise for them to have a record of their numbers to know uh, where they stand. Of course, they will not trust in their numbers. They will trust in the Lord God themselves, but it's still wise to know their numbers. It will also provide warning to this generation to not rebel, but we will look at that more uh, later on. And perhaps the primary reason for this census, uh, you can see in verses 52 to 56, is to record the size of the tribes for different land uh, apportionment. So it says in verses 52 through 56, I'll just read uh, some of those. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. So the sizes of the tribes need to be determined because 
that will determine the allotment of land that is given to them when they conquer the land. That's why if you have a handout that was passed out, it has a map of where the tribes of Israel ultimately settle out. We won't go into detail on that, but if you want to look at that later on, uh, you're welcome to do so. And it is helpful for our biblical literacy to be comfortable and familiar with that geography. So that is uh, probably the primary factor is that it is stated clearly that these people are going to go in and they are going to take the land and they need to know how much land will each tribe get. It is not as though Israel will just have the land and people settle wherever they want. The tribes will be divided. It will be uh, segmented. It will be orderly. So that is one of the purposes for this census. And you can see, uh, if you want to look, we won't go there again, but you can see in the book of Joshua, specifically chapter 18, where this allotment takes place. Joshua sends out men to divide the land into different areas, and they cast lots. They follow through with God's word because he commands that uh, the land shall be divided by lot, and they obey that in the time of Joshua's leadership. So that covers the premise, some of the reasons for this. Now let's get into the... Uh, tribes themselves and see what is going on there. So it starts off with um, the tribe of Reuben. And this is why in the handout you'll see a chart uh, that just provides you, as it's numbering these tribes, it the chart will compare how many were they in the first census and how many are they now so that you can see, have a quick reference for their, um, their numbers, the change in their numbers, and also where they rank in size. So if one has a one before it, that'll mean it's the largest, 12 meaning that it's the smallest. The first tribe that's listed is Reuben. Reuben is listed first because he was the firstborn to Jacob. He was born by Leah, uh, the wife that Jacob did not love. So he has preeminence here. Now, because of his sinfulness, he does not have preeminence overall. He just has the first listing in terms of these censuses. But his preeminence is given to Judah instead. Reuben sees a slight decrease in population from the first generation to this generation, but uh, not many thousands of difference. And it makes a special note to talk about Dathan and Abiram. If you were here when we talked about Korah's Rebellion, you will maybe remember these names. Korah's Rebellion is named for Korah, who was a Kohathite, uh, who was kind of the ringleader of this rebellion. But Dathan and Abiram were very prominent figures as well. So if you will, turn with me to number 16, and we'll just recap some of these events. So Korah brings out these people, Dathan and Byram are with him, and they confront Moses and say, all the people are holy, why have you separated yourself from the people? Why has God exalted you pretty much? They are angry that they do not have the position of authority that Moses does. They are wrongly questioning God's leadership and his authority that he has designated to Moses. In verses 12 to 15, we see Dathan and Byram, some of their characteristics. So Moses sends word to them and says, come here, <clears throat> we need to talk, you need to repent. And listen to what they said. We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? 
Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. You can see the utter disregard that Dathan and Byram have for the authority of the Lord. His chosen prophet, Moses, tells them, Come, we need to talk about this. You need to repent. And they say, No, we won't come up. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about his authority. They defy him to his face. So Moses uh, pronounces a curse on them. He asks God to not respect them, uh, to not honor them because of their refusal, because of their denying his authority. So in verses 27 to 35, we see what becomes of them. Where it says, uh, So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive in the Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So Dathan and Byron are mentioned here because they are mentioned as an example of judgment. Um, they are called to mind to tell the people, do not imitate this. And it does offer a further explanation that maybe it had been misunderstood that the sons of Korah had died as well. We know that they actually survived and wrote uh, many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And it says in verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. It was only the sons of Dathan and Abiram who, because of their blatant disregard for the Lord and defiance, that their uh, whole line was wiped out. So those are some of the things that we see with Reuben. The next name mentioned is Simeon in verses 12 to 14. Simeon was Leah's secondborn. Uh, he's the smallest tribe at this point. Simeon sees a dramatic decrease in population that you can maybe see. He goes from some 50,000 to 22,000. Uh, it's a dramatic decrease. Some speculate that the reason for this is maybe tied to chapter 25, if you remember Dallas preached on that, where Zimri uh, commits this flagrant and ignorant sin in front of the whole congregation of evil, endorsing and promoting idolatry. And Zimri was a Simeonite. So some people speculate maybe he was the leader of a tribe, or maybe he was high in his clan. So that judgment specifically fell primarily on the tribe of Simeon. So that is one of the reasons for their low numbers. Or, I mean, there are many other explanations, and we can't be sure of which one, but it could have just been that maybe it was God's judgment that they didn't bear as many children or whatnot. But at this point, they are the smallest tribe Moving on to Gad, uh, Gad was Zilpah's first son. Zilpah was one of the servants um, of Jacob's wives, and she was given to Jacob to uh, bear him offspring. 
And GAD sees a slight decrease in population. You can see it goes from 45,650 people to 40,500 people. Now moving on to Judah. Judah was Leah's fourth born. In terms of birth order, Judah was not very significant, but because of many factors, Judah is given preeminence in all things. You'll remember that uh, Jacob's blessing on Judah is that the scepter shall not depart from him. The line of kings will be from Judah. So you can see some of God's blessing on the tribe of Judah comes out here and that they are the largest tribe by a fairly good margin. Um, at this point, they have 76,500 people, which again makes sense because as we see the kingdom of Israel develop and split, you have the southern tribe of Judah, the northern tribe of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel. It makes sense because Judah was so large, they were comparable to the rest of the tribes put together in a way. So it makes it a special note to talk about some of Judah's descendants, and we'll take a look at some of them. So it says the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Ur and Onan, just to uh, make you familiar, in the midst of the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis, we break away to this account of Judah. And it says that Judah goes aside and has sexual relations with a Canaanite woman and bears three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And he works to get a wife for his oldest, his firstborn, Ur, and her name is Tamar. Ur is wicked in the sight of the Lord, so God strikes him dead. And then it is now Onan's job as the next uh, brother to take the wife of his brother and provide him with offspring. Uh, Onan is wicked as well, and he intentionally thwarts his fertility so that he will not sire a son uh, for his brother for various reasons. So on account of his wickedness, God strikes him dead as well. As a result of that, Judah does not want to give him, uh, to give Tamar, his youngest son, Shelah, because he is concerned that he will die as well. So he um, wrongfully treats Tamar and does not give his son to her. The end of this account is a tragic story where Judah commits sexual sin with Tamar, and as a result of that, uh, Tamar bears twins, Perez and Zerah. And it's an interesting account of their birth because they are twins, and Zerah reaches out first with a hand, they tie a scarlet thread around, and then withdraws a hand, and then Perez actually comes out first. I'm a twin, that is not how my birth went. Uh, it was a C-section, but I'm firstborn by right. I didn't cheat my brother, so let's just say that. Um, but that is how it happened for Perez and Zerah. It makes a special point to say that Perez has a son, Hezron, and he has his own tribe, the Hezronites. And we know by the genealogy in the book of Matthew that it is through this line that Joseph ultimately comes, the wife of Mary uh, who bears Jesus. If that is not a testament that God can use sinful and broken situations and people for glorious purposes, I really don't know what it is. There is much messiness in the Bible. It is not a clean book in that it doesn't touch on serious or sinful topics. It does, and it points us to the fact that God can use anything. As we saw in the account of Balaam, he can use even a pagan to accomplish his will, um, even when maybe it wouldn't seem sensible to us that he would do so. 
we'll go through a number of these names quickly. So Issachar was Leah's fifth son, sees an increase in population between the two generations. Zebulun, Leah's next son, the sixth, uh, has an increase in population. And then we get to Joseph. It's interesting, and again, a point of biblical literacy, there were 12 sons of Israel, but there are 12 tribes of Israel that inherit land and one that is not, Levi. So that makes 13 tribes. How is that the case? Where did this extra tribe come from? And it is from Joseph. Uh, you'll remember Joseph was Rachel's firstborn. Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved. So Joseph was his favorite son, of course, and that account of Joseph's um, favoritism is well known. So he received a double portion from Jacob in his blessings to where Joseph had two sons and each of them was promoted basically as a half-tribe and they were each to receive an inheritance. Those sons were, of course, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn, Ephraim was the secondborn. In this uh, passage, we see that Manasseh has a significant increase in population, probably the greatest increase in population of the tribes. And it makes note of the daughters of Zelophehad, which I won't touch on much because uh, hopefully the person who preaches next out of chapter 27, which focuses on the daughters of Zelophehad, will touch on that. But it sets us up, it reveals to us that this man, Zelophehad, had no sons. So in that sense, his inheritance would not continue forward, but he has daughters. So it kind of creates this problem, this dilemma, what will happen of this situation. And that is uh, explained in chapter 27. It is always unique when women are called out in genealogies or in censuses. That's why it's interesting that when this passage describes uh, Asher and when Genesis describes the descendants of Asher, it points out that he has a daughter named Sarah. That's not very common to point out the women in genealogies. Um, so Ephraim, uh, of course, as I said, was Joseph's secondborn, and much like Jacob was not the eldest, but he was second to Esau, but yet received the birthright, so Jacob blesses abundantly Ephraim, the secondborn, over Manasseh. It is again a point of flipping the normal conventions on their head, where, Jacob, where Joseph wants Jacob to put his hands on his children and Jacob does this. Joseph says, no, you, you didn't do that right. Uh, but Jacob tells him, no, Ephraim um, will be preeminent. The older shall serve the younger again. And Ephraim sees a decrease in population. Benjamin was Rachel's secondborn. Benjamin was the son that during childbirth, Rachel died, actually. So uh, he was the last of Rachel's children and he sees an increase in population at this time. Next is Dan, who was Bilhah's firstborn, one of uh, Jacob's wife's servants. He sees a slight increase in population, and he only has one clan, which is interesting. Dan only had one son, but despite that, next to Judah, he is the most uh, populous tribe. It's very remarkable that God can, out of one man, make such a great people as he does with Abraham, of course, that we see, but he also does in smaller senses with uh, some of these tribes. The next is Asher, 
who was Zilpah's second son, sees an increase in population, and again, it's unique that it mentions his daughter, Sarah, which is the same she is called out in Genesis 46 as well, talking about Asher's descendants. And then the last of the military census is Naphtali, who was Bilhah's second son and sees a decrease in population. So now why is Levi excluded from this part of the census? Leah was, or Levi was Leah's thirdborn, and there is a different standard for him. There's a different standard for the tribe of Levi because he is not to inherit land in Canaan. His inheritance is described many places as his inheritance is God himself. His inheritance is the priesthood. His inheritance is the offerings. So he would not have much land. There would be specific cities of refuge that would be given to the tribe of Levi for the manslayer to flee to. But other than that, they did not have any land. They were not providing for themselves uh, very much. They relied on the offerings of the people of Israel, the sacrifices of the people of Israel to survive. And that is a blessing that God bestows on them, aside from the blessing of them being able to dwell near the tabernacle, ultimately to go into the temple, uh, to be very close to God's presence. That is esteemed an equal inheritance with land, uh, is their proximity to God. I think that should be teaching for us that not everything is about things on this earth, right? We cannot just be consumed with possessions on this earth or with means of success on this earth, but God is more important than all of that. And the tribe of Levi is an example of that. And there is a different standard of counting for the tribe of Levi, again, because they're not concerned with military might or numbers. They count all the males over one month old. To give you a sense of uh, how big the priesthood will be, how many people there will be serving in the service of the tabernacle and the temple. And the tribe of Levi sees a slight increase. They go from 2,200 to 2,300 people. And then it outlines uh, in these verses that Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were of the tribe of Levi, um, which it makes a special note to say. And we recall these wonderful people, Aaron, Miriam, Moses, who each had their flaws, but they are great people. And then immediately after that, we are reminded of some of the worst the tribe of Levi had to offer in Nadab and Abihu. It has been mentioned many times in this series, but Nadab and Abihu were wicked sons, and they went before the Lord with no commendation, no permission, with unauthorized fire. And because of their blatant arrogance, their sin, their disobedience, they are judged on the spot and God kills them. So that leads us into what is another function of this passage? It is a warning to this new generation. We see Dathan and Abiram, an example of sinfulness, rebellion. We see Ur and Onan, an example of wickedness and rebellion. We see Nadab and Abihu, an example of wickedness and disobedience. And God judged them all. So this serves as an example to the, this new generation that it will be the same for them. It is true that they have been preserved despite their uh, fathers and mothers being judged, but it is not as though they are free from any obligation of holiness or obedience. They still have the same standard. They still have to obey, and if they do not, they will become as these wicked men have been. So the first wicked generation, it said, 
uh, serves as an example for us today, but it also served as as an example for them, that if they followed in the sinful footsteps of their fathers, they too would be uh, ejected from the land. What a mercy is it that God has given us predecessors in the first generation, the second generation, in all of Israel's history, that we can look on and see the lessons that they had to learn. Lessons that, in many cases, ended with judgment. We can see those lessons, we can see what happened to them, and we can know that if we proceed in sin, if we continue in sin, the same will be true for us because we will prove ourselves to not be a true Israel. We will prove ourselves to be Gentiles at heart, um, and we will be judged the same. So let us not do that. Another point, uh, a lesson that we can learn from this chapter is an encouragement in God's faithfulness. God is faithful, though every man were unfaithful. The total population, if you look at the census in Numbers 1, was 603,550. It says here in this chapter that the population is now 601,730. So between the wicked generation that was totally wiped out and this generation, there was a loss of 1,820 people, which is not very significant. By uh, all standards, these numbers are pretty much the same. So even though this generation was wicked and wiped out, God preserves his people. He still is true to his promises. He promised that this people would be numerous as, uh, as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore, and he is still following through with that. It's not as though he saw how wicked the first generation was, judged them, and then he has this bitterness towards Israel where he says, now I despise you. No, he's still blessing them with, multitude, uh, with multitudes and multitudes of population. He does not despise his people for the sins of their fathers. They're just as numerous as before. Uh, God is still faithful to his promise to Abraham. In the same way, we can trust God to keep his word, uh, even if it doesn't seem like he will. You recall Abraham uh, was called by the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham had been given his promise, again, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and he is killing his only son. He is called to uh, kill his only son. And regardless of that, regardless of Abraham maybe saying, this doesn't make sense, he follows through with that. He trusts the Lord. And then it said that he knew that God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promise. Even when God does not seem like he is keeping his promises, even when we can't see how he would, God is still keeping his promises. He is faithful and faithful. Now, that is the positive side of his faithfulness, that he uh, is faithful to his promises of blessing. There is also a negative side of his faithfulness that we see in this passage, um, that he is faithful not just for his promises of blessing, but his promises of judgment. God is not, he does not follow through with his, pro- with his blessings and slack on his promises of judgment. In verse 64, we see this. Moses writes, but among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest. Remember, this people, God had promised them, you have been so wicked, this first generation had been so wicked that he would not let one of them see the land. He would not let one of them come into it. And we see here that he does not swerve from his word. He does not depart from that. Um, He follows through. On a side note, note the variety of God's ways. It's just good for us to note God explicitly said, I will wipe out this generation 
And he did not just do it in one moment. He didn't send out an angel of the Lord like he did with the Assyrian army to just wipe out all the people. He had many ways. You can think of Dathan and Byram. The ground just opens them up immediately and kills them. Some of them likely just died of old age. Some of them died from civil punishment, from them rebelling. Some of them died by fiery serpents biting them, by plagues. God used many ways to accomplish his means. Many times when we pray to the Lord, we expect him to only answer in one way. God, give me wisdom. And we just expect a lightning bolt to hit us, and now we're Solomon, the wisest of all men, right? That's not the case. God doesn't always work like that. Uh, many times he works through time, through other means to give us wisdom, to give us patience, to make us holy. He does not work in the same way for all people. Uh, he, has, he is the God of the ends and the God of the means, and his means are varied. Uh, his means for salvation, of course, are the same. It is Jesus Christ alone. But accomplishing his, mean, uh, his ends, he has many means. So let us be comforted that if we see God maybe not answering our prayers as we would think he should, God has a full toolbox of ways that he can accomplish his ends. So do not be discouraged when your prayers seem to not be answered. He is answering your prayers. So uh, going back to that, the negative side of uh, God's faithfulness. When Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He will not depart from that word. He said, not one will enter the land, not one entered. He says, not one will enter paradise, not one will know the Father or see the Father, but by me. He will not depart from that. There will be no one who sees God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. When he says through his servant John that if one walks habitually in darkness, that he does not know the Father and he will not see the Father, he will not depart from that word. He is faithful to keep his word, not just blessing, but judgments. So the implication for us is that we need to persist in our work of examining ourselves. Uh, we should not think that God will all of a sudden not follow through on his word. He will follow through. Uh, we need to consistently examine ourselves to see if there's a rebellious heart in ourselves, if we see wickedness that goes unchecked in our hearts, if we are seeing the fruit of repentance in our lives. Um, we need to continue to turn from our sins, replace vice with virtue, sin with faith, and hatred with love. So live by faith, and do good works, lest you prove yourself to be outside of the true Israel. As well, be driven to share the gospel, friends. Um, again, God will not depart from his word. The judgment is coming. We have it promised. We have it assured. Jesus is coming, and he will not swerve from that. Uh, he will not delay forever. God's judgment is promised, and it is coming. So share the good news. Invite them to escape the judgment, to flee to Christ, to lean on the rock that is higher than we are for salvation. Of you all that I know, uh, I say the same that the author of Hebrews says, that I feel sure of better things, uh, things that belong to salvation, things that do not belong to judgment. But it is still our work to confirm our calling and election. So let us do that to the glory of God so that we may be pleasing in his sight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord, we delight in you. We delight in who you are, that you are a God of your word, that you are a God of faithfulness. You are a God of mercy and grace to those who have trusted in your son who has borne their sins. We are grateful for this text uh, that you have given us examples in the past that we should learn from them, that we should not be judged as they were, but that we should receive grace. So help us not to walk in wickedness as the Israelites did, but help us to seek your face all day, every day, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love you above all. Help us to flee sin. Help us to replace our sin um, by the Holy Spirit with virtue, with good works, so it may be pleasing before you. Please help us in this by your Son and by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.